Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of NBA Draft Stories. I'm your host, Nick Nasby, and I absolutely can't believe it, but people actually listened to this last time. So I think I should keep going. That's so fucking cool, man. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it, but uh, like I was saying last time, I, I like sports, and I like even more than sports, I like the NBA, and even more than just the NBA, I love the draft. The draft is so cool. It's like the first day that we get to see these guys. It's the first day on the job. You sign your contract and now all of a sudden you're you're a part of the team and and I just I love that concept. And there's so many stories that go around the draft and and that's why I figured that if I'm going to do a a a, a pod of anything, it's going to be about the draft. It's going to be about the NBA draft. So, I'm sitting here with my laptop and I'm recording, and I'm going to be talking about more draft topics. And last week or last time that I, I did this, I was talking about draft busts. If you made it through that entire that entire episode, you, you'd know that we talked about the Mount Rushmore of draft busts. Because it's, it is really rare. There's a lot of guys who don't pan out, but but there's very few that we consider to be true busts. And it depends on a few a few concepts. If you want to go into those concepts, check out that, that episode. Um, it's right right before this one. There's really going to be only two at this point, so not too hard to find. I have been spending the last couple days researching because I, I, I do want to improve. I, I like to come out with good content. I know that I know this stuff, but I, I know that other people don't know how to like listen to just some guy drone on about sports for, for an hour, an hour and a half. So you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to figure it out, and I and I'm learning just as as much as as I as I can in, in the short amount of time I've been doing this. I'm locked in in quarantine, which is great for anybody listening after after this is over. We're uh, we're all stuck inside, so I have nothing else to do except talk to you guys about sports, and that is what I'm gonna do. So last time I talked about busts, I talked about guys who didn't pan out, and this week, on the contrary. I'm going to talk about draft gems, sleepers, steals, guys who slip through the cracks. These are some of the best stories in the NBA. And, and, and honestly, they get a lot of recognition now, but we don't see where the roots were. And I think there's a lot of good aspects to draft sleepers, draft gems. And uh, we're going to go through what constitutes a gem. Right, what constitutes a draft gem? Because there's a lot of guys who get drafted probably a couple spots after they should have been drafted. There's a couple guys in every draft class who probably should have been the number one. You see those Bleacher Report slideshows that always say redrafting the 2000 whatever class, and and that's what we see because it sometimes in retrospect some guys worked out better than others. I think a lot of those stories have to do with system. I think a lot of those stories have to do with locale. I think that some guys would work better in one place than another place for one coach as opposed to another coach with a certain team as opposed to other guys. It, it makes a huge difference, and I think we're going to go into that mostly on this when we go through these through these sleepers. So there's there's questions that come to mind that constitute what is an actual draft gem, right? First one, where'd they come from? Where'd they come from? Where did, were they from a big-name school? Or were they from a mid-major? Were they from a small school? Were they from overseas? Where did they go? And when I say where did they go, where in the draft did they go? 
Did they go in the top 10? Did they go in the top 20? Anybody in the top in the top 5, top 10 can still be a draft sleeper. It depends on how good you are. The higher you go, the better you have to be to overshoot the expectations of what you're supposed to be where you went. If you're the number 5 pick and you're averaging 25 a game, good, you're probably supposed to do that. We can't expect you to do that. But we can say, hey, you know what? He was in the number five pick. Not a lot of teams slept on him. But if you're the number 45 pick and you're doing that, well, now we have to kind of look at what the hell happened. How did you get to that point? How did nobody see what you were capable of? That leads into the next question. What did they do? How long did they do it? Who went in front of them? And why, why did we think they were going to be bad? Or Because we didn't think these guys were all going to be bad. Why did we think they weren't going to be as good as they were? That's the better question. Why did we think that they were going to be worse than they ended up being? And once you ask those questions, you realize, or I realize, that this topic's going to need some categories. Because there's a lot of different ways that someone becomes a draft gem. And we can't look at them all the same way. We can't look at everybody as being a specific type. I think that we have to look at different different categories. And, and the first category is the mid-major sleeper. I think this is the most popular category. Now you're going to notice there's a pretty prominent name that's left off this category. And you'll, and you'll see why as we keep going. The first mid-major sleeper that I love to talk about, he's one of my favorite topics of conversation in any, in any conversation about basketball, Damian Lillard, the sixth overall pick in 2012, right? When he is on, when he is on his game, he is the best scorer in the league, and I will, I will debate anybody on that. Watch him, watch him right around the time that Kobe passed away. Watch him against the Lakers when they came back. The, t- the tear he was going on. What he was doing to teams. He turned into this guy who was just going to pull up from anywhere. He didn't care. He didn't give a shit what you felt about it. He was just going to sink a three in your face and he was going to wave at you, say it's Dame time, whatever the hell that means. He's going to run to the other side of the court and just hope that the rest of his team's playing defense. Because we all know Terry Stotts doesn't really care. He's also the best rapper in the NBA. Like, for real. He's actually good. The other ones try to be good, but he's actually a pretty good rapper. He is the coldest. Because think about this. You know, Jordan won series once in a while. Kobe's hit game winners. LeBron's hit game winners. But have you really ever seen someone who has that calculated and coldly put a team away on a buzzer beater twice? Two different teams, of course. But put him away twice. What he did to Paul George. That was a terrible shot. It was a horrible shot. But he took it because he can. He has that kind of leverage to take those kind of shots. He's carried more than one mediocre team. Well past where they should have gone in the playoffs. He's been snubbed on all-star games. Time in and time out. He's finally starting to get his perennial all-stars like he should. And coming out of high school, he was a two-star recruit. Two stars out of Oakland. Now, he was six feet tall. He's 165 pounds. He did grow. But think about that. What we see from Dame today, 
the kind of player that we see from Dame today. And he was a two-star recruit, and he couldn't get an offer to with, with significant playing time. you got to understand when I go through these guys, a lot of them had better offers. They really did. But they wanted to play. They wanted to get exposure. Okay, So they, they went to places where they were going to get the most playing time. And for him, it was Weber State in Utah. Because, you know, Damian Lillard, if you see him and you see, like, how he acts and how he is, no offense to the guy, but, like, he definitely belongs in Utah. Does that make sense? And, and so he he was – he grew into his body. He started to learn his craft. He was the sixth overall pick. So there's nothing wrong with, with where he got drafted, really, except for the fact that you see who went in front of him. You had Thomas Robinson. Remember him? Out of Kansas. Real – a lot of hype – and I'll be honest, Dion Waiters is on this draft, and so was Michael Kidd Gilchrist. But going back to Dion, every single fucking person and every single draft that I watched and that I looked through for this for this episode, there is a Syracuse player on it, and they're all garbage. I swear. If you if you listen to my last podcast, you 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 hear that I'm a huge Syracuse fan, and every single draft. There's this gem who gets taken in the second round, and a Syracuse player gets taken in the first, and the Syracuse player is hot garbage. And now I have to relive it. Ugh. So AD and Beal were in that 2012 draft too. AD was the first pick. Beal was the third. And and I'll be honest, I, I guess I'm a little biased. I don't know if I'm biased. I'm not a I'm not a Blazers fan or anything. I just really like Dame. I would rather have Dame on my team than AD or Beal. And you can you can debate me on that one too, but just somebody who has that kind of clutch factor, somebody who can go off for sixty just cause, just cause he just wants to. It's almost like he just feels like it. That's the kind of player that I want. That's what that's what Damian Lillard is, you know. And to see where he came from, like oh my god, what he's grown into, it's incredible. Same deal for Paul George. Fresno State, number 10 pick in 2010, right? And Paul George, his career is marked by that injury. If you remember back when he was playing for Team USA, uh, I think it was FIBA 2014 or maybe 2010. No, it was 2014. He really broke his leg real bad. He snapped it real bad. And no one really thought he was going to come back from it. And not only did he – because, I mean, here's the thing. Some guys come back, some guys don't. No offense to Gordon Hayward, but he hasn't really come back from that same kind of snap leg. We don't know what's going to happen with Nurkic. He's young. Hopefully it works out for him. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, you have to think about the fact that that was a freak thing. So your mind goes like, oh my God, that could happen at any time. So it's understandable that if he didn't come back, but he didn't just come back. He came back way better. He's one of the best two-way players in the NBA, probably top three. Got another one of those guys who's coming up here. Probably can guess who it is. He is another clutch shooter. He's another guy who's a great teammate. He's just someone who's nice to play with and will put up 30. And will be on the MVP ballot. And you'll consider voting for him. In 2010, he was taking 10th overall, which isn't that bad for where he was coming out of. He was a three-star recruit out of high school. He had offers from Penn State. He had he had offers from bigger schools, but he chose to go to Fresno State because he wanted to play. And they were offering him playing time. In 2010, he got drafted at 10th overall, like I mentioned. Some names who went before him, Greg Monroe, fuck that guy. Fuck Georgetown. 
Hate them. Al Farouk Aminu. Derek Favors went before him. Evan Turner went before him. He's got some real, real bad case of fish eyes. No offense, Evan. I don't think you'll ever listen to this, but no offense if you do. And then, of course, Wesley Johnson out of Syracuse. One of my boys. Not really, but I loved Wes Johnson. He was so good. And no, people will only remember him now. They'll only remember him for being the guy who got crossed by Harden and then Harden stood there and then he shot a three in his face like a dickhead. Not cool, but whatever. Poor Wes, man. He didn't deserve that. He's a nice guy. He just, you know, he's quiet, whatever. But Paul George, mid-major sleeper. Next up, Kawhi. And Pete, dude, I don't know how to explain Kawhi Leonard. I don't think there's anything I could say on an actual, on like airwaves that would be appropriate to, to say about Kawhi Leonard. But he is the most enigmatic star that I've ever seen. He was so perfect on the Spurs. I don't, that's why I didn't realize, I didn't understand why it didn't work out there because he's so perfect on that team. You know, they, they don't like to talk. He hates to talk. They're quiet and they keep things to themselves. Did you know that Kawhi had a daughter? I didn't know he had a daughter. That's something that I learned when he won the NBA Finals. Again. My favorite video of Kawhi was when he was a second year playing against playing against the um, the the Heat in the finals and and just if you if you see it, watch this video if you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, just watch it. It's easy to YouTube. LeBron sees Kawhi coming in. This kid's like at this point probably like 21, 22 years old. And he turns around, and you can see him say, like, oh shit. Like real pissed off. Because Kawhi's coming in. And he's not he's not looking forward to having to play against him. He's a dog, man. He's a dog. This dude, he hounds anybody on defense. And that, and I think a big part of what had him slip a little bit was that he was really defensive minded coming in. He's, he was a, he was a, an incredible defensive mind. My favorite part about Kawhi Leonard, and I, I say this every time I watch him play, when you watch Kawhi going on the court, and he's he, he's a really good cross-key dribbler, which we don't see as much of anymore. He's a great cross-key dribbler, which means he's going, he's going uh, parallel with the baseline dribbling. And you can tell that he knows the spot that he's going to pull up from. He's a mid-range guy, just like Jordan. You know, this is this is '90s, '80s basketball that we're seeing here, and he's putting up 30, 35 points like that. It's not how we see the game being played anymore. I mean, he doesn't care. He's another one, just like Dame, an absolute dog. He's cold blooded. He's ice cold, and he will end your season. Ask the Sixers. Ask Embiid. He will end your season today. He doesn't care. But good luck trying to get an interview with him. He's just an interesting guy. I don't know. I think back then what I what I was thinking as well when I was doing some research on this, he was his game back then is equivalent the equivalent of what his personality is now and back then, but but specifically now where his game we didn't know what he was going to be. Now we know what he is, but we don't know who he is. You know, he he's this he's this prototype of this guy who we're trying to we're just trying to love him. We're all just trying to love him, and he's making it so goddamn difficult because he's he's just quiet. He doesn't like the spotlight. That's what happens when you're very good at something. You get a spotlight on you, especially if that's a sport. And he's got that spotlight. He didn't want it. That's fine. 
He was drafted in 2011, 15th overall. Not a bad pick, right? Some names that went before him. Ennis Cantor. I don't know if you'd like Ennis Cantor. Um, I didn't even like him when he was on the Knicks. I'm a Knicks fan. Whatever. He's not. He's weird, man. He's a weird boy. Derek Williams, number two overall. Do you remember where he went? Because I don't. Tristan Thompson. Khloe Kardashian's baby daddy. Jonas Valanciunas. Jan Vesely, fourth overall from the Czech Republic. I remember him getting up and he had his really hot girlfriend. And then he goes and gets drafted. And then we never hear from him again. So I hope it worked out with them. Bismack. 6'9", Bismack. And then, you know, Kemba was in front of him too. This is Kemba's draft, which I'll, I'll be honest, like, obviously you don't want... I, I put him there because it's just... Kemba was one of these guys who was also slept on. You could put him on this. We could talk about him too, but he's not Kawhi. He's not what Kawhi is. He's not what Kawhi's turned into. Kawhi's going to be a star for the rest of his career. He's going to go down as probably one of the best champions who's ever lived if he keeps doing what he does. He's already got two championships. He's got he's got that monkey off his back, and he had it off his back since he was like about 22 years old. In the second one, he literally carried the entire country, Canada, the second largest com- country in the world, on his back and brought him a title. He was so dominant that you can't even be mad at him as a Canadian if he leaves. They're just like, okay, do what you got to do. Last up on this topic, on this particular category, is his teammate from that 2019 championship team. And uh, when, I, when I thought about Pascal Siakam, you know, more recent than anybody else that we've talked about so far, he was this guy, I mean, his, what comes to mind when I think about him is Danny Granger. And they both played in New Mexico. Danny Granger played for the University of New Mexico. Pascal played for NMSU in Las Cruces. And he was, he came out as a redshirted junior. Six foot nine, two hundred and thirty pounds. He's not really. He wasn't really the biggest. He wasn't the best shooter. He wasn't really the best at anything. And he comes to the NBA at 22 and he's only averaging about four points a game. Nobody really thinks twice about a guy who averages four points a game. Like, you might do it again, you might get better. But the reason why he reminds me so much of Danny Granger is the the big notation of Danny Granger, especially in his career early on, was that he just kept improving. Danny Granger's early career was marked by an improvement of five points per game every season up until 25 a game. He was averaging 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 in his fourth year. And Pascal, very similarly, even more aggressively, he went 4, 7, 16 on the championship team. And then before the season got suspended, 23 again. The second best player on a, on, a, on a championship winning team could make an argument that he was if as important, if not more. You probably lose that argument, but you can make it. And he is without a doubt the most, the most important player on a still very good Raptors team. And he's only going to get better. He knows how to score. He's got his free throw percentage up. He's up over 50%, 50% from, from field goal. Actually, if not, he dropped in field goal, but he went up in free throw. You know, 
getting seven and a half rebounds, almost a block a game, almost four assists a game. And these are numbers that is, is those are glue numbers. You're pushing glue numbers. If you can get to glue numbers, now you're a guy who who is untradeable. Ask Draymond. <laughs> well, I guess for now. I think he learned a lot from Kawhi. I think his game is mirroring Kawhi right now. I think Kawhi is able to play larger than he is because of his wingspan, because of his strength, his shoulder size, and his hand size. And I think he was able to teach Pascal a lot about what, what he does because his his dimensions with his arms and hands, etc., kind of are more mirrored to somebody who is actually Pascal's size in the NBA. And I think that he was able to take a lot from him. And in that draft, Pascal Siakam was drafted in 2016, 27th overall. And he got taken behind Wade Baldwin, Gershon Yabusele, who like had a couple good seasons, not really though. And then like, of course, going right back to Syracuse, Malachi Richardson went that year to the Nets. I remember that. I was like, I liked Malachi. I know he went too soon. A lot of things is like these guys, Beheim doesn't, he doesn't recruit for, for one year. So we get these guys who go after one year and then they're not good. And then it's like, well, you can't come back. You, you fucked that up. You should have stayed. We told you to stay. You didn't stay. But, um, you know, Malachi is just another one of them. Another bust, 17th overall, whatever he went. He's not in the league anywhere, I don't think. Maybe he is. I don't know. And so there's a whole bunch of other mid-major sleepers you could talk about. You could go back in the day. You could talk about guys from way back when. I think I'm going to keep it there for that just for time's sake. And if you if I ever re- revisit this, I'll go into different ones. But the next, the next one that I have up here, shorter, because again, I'm going, this is more of a recent sleeper type of, of draft thing where you have your senior sleepers, right? What is the goal here? You want these guys fresh. You want these guys when you see the potential and you want to be able to pay them to improve with your professional staff as opposed to a college team where they're not making your organization any money. They're making the NCAA money. I don't want to talk about the NCAA. I'm not fucking happy with them right now about all the stuff. By the way, this this is uh, what's what's the date today? It's the 24th today. Trevor Lawrence just got his uh, GoFundMe taken down by the NCAA. He had a GoFundMe that was started for the, for getting money raised for people with, with coronavirus. And the NCAA told him to take it down because it's fundraising. Think about that for a second. I got a whole thing about it. I could, I could talk about this for hours, but I'm not going to. So your senior sleepers, before I get too mad about it, senior sleepers, number one, Draymond Green. I do not like Draymond Green. I don't know if you do like Draymond Green. If you're somebody who has always liked Draymond Green, I don't. I, I do question you as a person. You know, you're pro- you might be a good person though, so I'm not gonna like assume anything. But like, dude, this guy is so annoying. But let's talk about his stats. Let's talk about what he does. You see his stats on paper; it's nothing important. Nine points a game, you know, eight boards, five to seven rebounds. That's what he can get you that on any given day. He'll also get you a triple double where he'll struggle to score the 10 points necessary for it. But he'll get you six steals. He'll get you four blocks. He'll get you seven assists and and 12 rebounds. He's the kind of glue guy that you need on a team with the kind of star power that the Warriors have had. I think that KD coming threw out the chemistry a little bit. I don't know 
kind of what he was thinking there. But when it was just the three, I'm going to focus on before Kevin Durant times. When it was just Draymond, Clay, and Steph, it was so blissfully beautiful. It was it was amazing. It was poetry. Because you have this 6-7 guy who's a power forward but is playing point guard and they're running the offense through him to a, a point guard slash shooting guard who's shooting the ball from 40 and the guy who's 6'6 six, six, who is who who's scoring 60 points and is only dribbling the ball 12 times in a game. Like this is the kind of things that movies are made of. Whoever heard of a storyline like that? And Draymond was the glue of all of it. And once it's all back together, people forget like this is just an injury season for them. You know, it's an injury season that's probably going to be shortened. And so they're coming back. The Warriors are coming back and they're going to have a really good lottery pick. And and they're going to come back strong next year and Draymond's probably going to be right back where, to where he was. He's only 30 or maybe not even 30. I don't know when his specific birthday is. I know he's born in 1990. Is he a Hall of Famer? I don't think so right now. I think he's got more to prove. I think if he wins, I mean, think about it. If you want to call Draymond a Hall of Famer, I think you have to start to talk about Robert Ori as a Hall of Famer. It's more championships. He's been big in those championships. You know, I mean, the NBA lets a lot of guys in that probably shouldn't get in. So who knows? Honestly, they it's sometimes even a popularity contest, so there's a good chance he gets in. There's some guys on this who are in the Hall of Fame who deserve it, and then there's other guys who will get into the Hall of Fame who don't. And I, I honestly think that Draymond will get into the Hall of Fame, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately just because I don't, I don't agree, but I think that it's going to be close. I don't think it's going to be first ballot. 2012, that draft that we were talking about with Damian, he got drafted in that draft too, 35th overall. He went after... Name any of these guys. Kendall Marshall, Arnett Moultrie, Perry Jones, Bernard James, John Jenkins. Did that on purpose. No fucking idea who those guys are. I know Perry Jones. I remember him from Baylor. Thought he was going to be good, but it didn't work out. The other senior sleeper that I'm going to talk about here is Malcolm Brogdon. And Malcolm Brogdon was a surprise in that 2016 draft because that draft was garbage at least at first it's still panning out because ingram's getting better you know 2016 you know simmons is back jalen brown was in that draft and he's obviously getting some star power behind him too but malcolm brogdon won the rookie of the year that year because nobody else was good enough to do it because the assumption was this is the ben simmons draft ben simmons is coming to the nba oh my god here we go the ben simmons era is upon us the six foot ten Australian-ish point guard who can't shoot anywhere outside of ten feet. He is here, everybody. Are you excited? He got hurt. Couldn't win the rookie of the year that year. Malcolm Brogdon won it, and honestly, everybody said it was it wasn't right for him to win it that year. I mean, it was because there was nobody else to get it. But what I mean is, and what I'm saying is, he wasn't really that good comparatively. To how he is now. He has improved every single year. That's the beauty of it. Why did people not want to take Malcolm Brogdon? Well, he turned 24 his rookie season. He's 27 years old. He'll be 28 already this year. That's not a long-term investment for the NBA these days. 
four years in, you want your guy to be 23, not 28, right? He averaged 16 a game this season before everything ended. He, he's always been up almost 90% from the free throw line, which I think is amazing for somebody of his age. That's one of the get things you get from an older guy coming into the league. You know, four years, leadership ability already coming right out of the gate with as a leader because he's been a leader probably for three years on his college team at this point. 16-7 and seven for him this year. I think he's a great stat line, especially for someone who, who's just going to be improving. On, the, on an Indiana team, pretty much without Oladipo the whole season, I don't really consider him coming back yet because he's, uh, you know, he's not playing full. Not full. Next year we'll see him. I think they should have sat him all season, but that's just me. They, they did well without him. That Pacers team, by the way, dangerous. Watch out for them at 21. They're going to be a good team. You know, they have guys who are now all-stars. Sabonis is an all-star now. Miles Turner is a disappointment, but that's fine. He likes to block shots. That's cool. The only issue with Brogdon is that he gets hurt. So hopefully he stays healthy. I mean, we see that with some guys where they either get hurt in the early part of their career and then they kind of shift their game to avoid places where they get hurt, kind of like Grant Hill did, or they just kind of derail like Penny. You know, So hopefully we don't see that from him, but it happens. So hopefully it just doesn't happen to him. He uh, got drafted in that 2016 draft and uh, got drafted out. And the only one I put down here is Malachi Richardson because I was just so pissed about him leaving. Can't change it. Can't change it. I put a little frowny face with a with a tear in it after Malachi there. Can you tell? I'm still still kind of the third category that. I saw as being a, a really big one. I had a lot of names on this one too, and, and I had to cut some down because I know I would talk about all of them too long. But the the, the un, unscouted European player, the unscouted Euro, right? It really, because it really started with Dirk, right? I mean, we had European players before Dirk. There's there's like Tony Kukoc and Detlef Schrempf and, and Sabonis for a little bit of time at the end of his career when he was decrepit, but nothing really like what we saw at Dirk Nowitzki because the, the European style was different, especially in the 90s. I mean, we didn't have guys who were a four or a five who were stepping away from the basket all that much. You know, Shrimp was one of them, but he was a European. That's the thing. You had guys who could shoot a mid-ranger. They could hit a turnaround but they preferred to be at the basket. They preferred to be three feet, four feet away from the basket and just figure out the moves. Look at the dream shake. Hakeem had a mid-ranger. He just didn't use it. So when we saw Dirk Nowitzki come in, he's changing the landscape of the NBA. He ushered in an entirely new generation of bigs, of guys who we are now seeing with the ability to pull up. With him, it was a three-point shot. If you are my age, and I'm 26 years old, and so I remember Dirk early on when he was with Steve Nash and, and in Dallas and all of those things were going on, and, and there was nobody else who shot threes out of five. He would play five. I mean, he would play mostly four, but he would play five 
when Desana Jop was on the was on the bench or Eric Dampier or whatever, and and he was shooting threes, and the announcers didn't really know what to do about it, because it was just like dark for three. Like, what do you what do you mean? Like, he's not supposed to do that. He had the turnaround where it looked like he was gonna fall down every single time. He was at about a fifty degree angle to the floor, and it was just. It was just something to watch because he also looked like he was in pain like all the time. If you saw Dirk his last season, like yes, he looked like he was pretty, pretty in pain. And I think he was that year. But even early on, he just he did not he never moved well. He really never moved well as a big man. But he was the catalyst of the 2011 Finals team, the the team that knocked off the new big three, everybody's favorite team in 2011 because everybody hated LeBron that year. Oh, my God. Remember when everyone was burning his jerseys? I remember they were showing him in every other stadium just getting booed. Everybody's villain for that for that decision that he made or the way that he made it. I don't know if, he, if, if people realize this also. People didn't care as much about the fact that he went to Miami. Like, that was pretty shitty. But it's like the way that he did it. It's like, hey, let me go to Boys and Girls Club on an hour episode with with ESPN and just so I can tell everybody that I'm screwing Cleveland over and going to team up with my friends in South Beach. You know? Like that was what really got people. So that 2011 team for the Mavericks, and I was thinking this when I was writing it down. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen a team that won the finals with such a drastic drop-off in talent from their star. You know, it goes Dirk, and then I would say the next best up is Finley. Oh, Finley's gone, sorry. Next best up, maybe Jason Terry. Ch- Tyson Chandler, maybe maybe Jason Kidd. I mean, Peja was in his last year. That There wasn't really a whole lot of immediate talent on that team other than Dirk. But it didn't matter. They didn't need other talent on that team other than Dirk. Dirk was the talent. He was the best player. He knew it. He took over. He was a star. And he and he brought it he brought a title back to Dallas. And he did it and he did it pretty much by himself. You know, and it's hard it's hard for me to say that with any kind of confidence, because there was a whole lot of team teamwork that went into that that finals, especially playing against a team like the 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 Heat back then. But I just think the the amount of effort that he put in, just the the contrast comparatively to the other p- players on his team, he was just on a different level from everybody on that court. Not just the not just his team, but he was he was out playing LeBron James. He was out playing Dwayne Wade. I mean, he was ma- he was making Chris Bosh look bad on a routine basis, and Chris Bosh was a decent defender, and he was making him look bad often. So we have to look at those types of things when we look at Dirk. He's a top three power forward of all time. I would put them put him only probably behind Timmy and and Carl Malone. And he was drafted ninth overall in 1998. And so there was a lot of talent in that 98 draft. That's where Vince went. And that's where Anton Jameson went. But he got drafted, and if you saw, if you listened to the draft, uh, draft bus episode last time, he got drafted behind Michael Alokandi. And I was making a point last time that if if it went Alokandi and then Dirk, then I think we're considering Alokandi a huge bust comparatively to what we consider him now, because Dirk went ninth, Alokandi went first, 
He went right in front of Mike Bibby. And Dirk dropped off because he was just a skinny German. People didn't know what to do with him. What do you mean he's a skinny German who's seven feet tall and shoots threes? What am I supposed to do with him? How is he going to match up against the bigs in the league right now? How, what's he supposed to do against Patrick Ewing? What's he supposed to do against Akeem? Or Shaq? How is he supposed to play against those guys? People didn't know. And so it was a risk to, to draft a guy like that. You have to see kind of where they were at the point. You know, that's why back then I think it's a completely different narrative. Because the game changed, and this is like the in-between years. The, the late 90s drafts are the in-between years between the old NBA and the new NBA, the NBA that we see today. Late 90s, early 2000s, where we have guys who are playing with the guys from the 90s. And now they're playing with the guys from the 2010s. I was going to talk about Luka, but I think that where he went was pretty fair compared to where where we were seeing him at that point. He went you know, behind DeAndre Ayton, who's still kind of yet to be determined. I think it's a little bit early for guys that in the 2018 draft, the 2019 draft, sorry. But what I will talk about is Kristaps Porzingis. And the thing about KP is it's not about where he got drafted. He went fourth overall. The only player in front of him that I would say was an absolute bad, like a big, a big mistake, was Julio Okafor. But he, I mean, even he thought we thought he was going to be a big, a big name. D'Angelo went before him. Cat went before him, and then it went Kristaps at four to the Knicks. He he's a gem and a steal because of how the fans reacted. I mean, it's notorious in the NBA that on draft night 2015. KP got drafted fourth overall and they booed him unmercifully. If you don't know, the draft takes place in New York. So there's a whole lot of Knicks fans there and they were not happy with who they took. And he just, it it brushed off of him. He just played. He went in and he started to average a whole bunch of points at once. And his first season, he gets to watch the star of the team, Carmelo Anthony, get Shopped around and waltzed around like he is nothing, like he's garbage. You know, and that's really what the Knicks did to him his last season was just like, you're nothing to us anymore. We don't need you anymore. We're going to give you to whoever wants you for whatever they want for you. You know, we don't care. And, and, and that was his first season. When he left, people are mad. Like I saw, I saw his first game back at Madison Square where he got booed. Here's my take on it. I think that if I was a star in that position, I would leave immediately as well. Why would I stay? The Knicks did nothing to keep him there. The Knicks did not try to keep him there. They did not make an environment that was viable for a star to thrive in New York City. So he left. I would have too, you know. He's a better fit in Dallas right now anyway. And the Knicks just continue to be a dumpster fire. I get to watch my team just crash and burn anyway I'm going to keep going because that, that that's not a fun topic for me Giannis Antetokounmpo they couldn't even pronounce his name right actually Stern did a good job if you if you listen to that draft he actually pronounced it perfectly rest in peace but if you also remember his rookie season they used to call him the alphabet because he had so many letters in his name 
they didn't they didn't know how to say it, so they just called him the alphabet. Greek freak starts to to work, and now just call him Giannis. If you are on a level of having a mononym with your first name, even if your first name is is relatively different from what we see here, Giannis is not an uncommon name in Greece. By the way, it's actually relatively common, but uh, he is the only Giannis that we know, and everybody knows him as Giannis. And when he came into the NBA, he clearly looked like he had no idea what was going on. Look at his games as a as a rookie. He was skinny. He always looked scared. He didn't really know where he fit. He also fell into a little bit of a, a, a too tall for a, for a three, too small for a four realm, which was a big deal back in 2013. But he had he was perfect. If you want, if you want to build a business around a star like the Bucks have done, then how how can you think of somebody better? He's no drama. He's got no issues. He loves his family. He stays home and he hangs out with his girlfriend and his kid. He's the MVP of the league, and he got drafted behind Shabazz Muhammad. Do y'all remember Shabazz Muhammad out of UCLA? That guy really, really loved himself. He was not good in the league though. He got drafted behind Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Ben Malcolmore, Alex Len, hilariously, you know. And you can, but it's at the time. How do you take a risk on a guy who looks like that? You can't know. For people like for people who drafted before him, you just can't know. But it it is a huge a steal that the Bucks got. They got a sleeper in the middle of the in the middle of the draft. And then a couple of the biggest ones. Couple of the biggest ones. Same team, same decade, same core. You know exactly where I'm going with this if you know if you know what I'm talking about. First up, Manu Ginobili. I remember in NBA Live two thousand and four they they were still calling him Emmanuel. So I for the first two years that I was watching the Spurs, I thought that they called him Emmanuel, so that's what I called him. For sure a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't know anybody who can dispute that. He is a first ballot Hall of Famer. He was the leader of that Argentina wave of the 2000s. If you remember, it started with him, and then Luis Scola, and then Andres Nocioni. You know, Paolo, Paolo, was it Pablo Prigioni was on the Knicks for a little bit of time. They were all very boring in the Olympics, but they beat us that one year, which isn't, which isn't too fun. But uh, he was a four-time champion, the core of the Spurs. Drafted in 1999, played a couple years overseas before he came over, and he got drafted that year behind, and just bear with me here, Vontigo Cummings, Evan Eschmeyer, and Rico Hill. None of them played more than five years in the NBA. He went 57th overall. He was just a skinny kid out of Argentina. Nobody knew about talent in South America at that point. You know, in the mid two thousands, because of the Argentina wave, you started to see guys coming out of Brazil like Nene. You know, there was Verjao, Brazilian, and I think that was it. Started it began this this mindset of like, wow, this game actually is worldwide. There's actually talent on every continent, except Antarctica, and we haven't been tapping this resource that we've had. And I think it's incredible. I really do. In, uh, in 2001, the Spurs struck again. I, they, the thing is when that Spurs team was, was, was performing on those high levels that they were performing on for so long, 
their draft picks and the guys that they would take, I would always just assume they were going to be good. I would always just assume that they were going to figure out a way to use them because that's the kind of eye that the Spurs had. And it really started with these two because where Manu went 57th, Tony went 28th in 2001. He was a 19-year-old French kid. He didn't stand out of a crowd, but he's another first ballot Hall of Famer. This guy won a finals MVP. He was a six-time All-Star. Tony Parker got so cool and so popular that he cheated on Eva Longoria. You know, every Desperate Housewives fan hates him. They hate him a lot. He was drafted in 2001. So if you, in the first episode I talked about this too, he was drafted behind Kwame Brown and Eddie Curry. And he won four championships with the Spurs. You know, I mean, that core was just... People, and I was listening to Bill Simmons talk about this, and I, I do tend to agree with him, where there's people who debate their the dynasty of the Spurs, and they debate it because they never won back-to-back. And I don't think that you can have that conversation because every single year the Spurs were in the running to win a championship, and almost it got to a point where it was almost every other year they were actually winning that championship. So how can you tell me that they're not competing? How, how can you tell me that they're not a dynasty? They have the same core of guys who are continuously winning championships. They won one in 03. The same guys won one in 2014. 11 years. Unfortunately, we don't see them really performing that way anymore. Hopefully Pop uh, gets, a, call, gets a, a good team together before he retires, but I don't know. They, they, uh, they, they got a lot of work to do. I think they're in a rebuild mode right now. Tony Parker went behind Kwame Brown. And Eddie Curry. Fuck Eddie Curry. I'll just say it. Can't stand that guy. He had no business in the NBA. The last category that I'm really going to go into, there's another category that I'll touch on, but the last one I'm really going to go into has a lot to do with the NBA as we see it today. It is a construct that we created because we were focused on very regimented position-based basketball and we weren't able to see anything other than that so this this one's called tweeners this category is called the tweeners or the, the size matters group right and it starts with Steph it has to start with Steph that the reason why I didn't talk about Steph in the mid-majors is because I wanted to talk about him here because I think it's more important to talk about what we thought about Steph coming in he was the seventh pick overall in 2009 Coming out of Davidson, that's no small feat. That's a very difficult position to get drafted. But he changed the actual game as we see it today. He actually changed the entire landscape of the NBA. Right? He changed what we consider to be a good shot. He changed to be what we consider to be a fast break result. He did all of this while going 50-40-90 on the second best team that's ever been assembled. He is, without question, the best shooter of all time. He will break the record for the most threes. He's able to do what Ray Allen did, what Reggie Miller did, what Klay Thompson is doing without having to catch and shoot. We've been all been waiting for a guy like that, and it hasn't happened yet, not to this extent. And I, I believe that, and I'm start, we're seeing it with Trey Young right now, it's going to start to come more. 
you know, these guys, these kids now are getting raised watching Steph Curry. You got to think that when he got drafted in 2009, kids who were born in 2009 are now 11 years old. So kids who were little at that time are 15, 16, 17 years old. These are the guys who are coming to college soon. So they were raised in the time of Steph Curry, where we were all witness to this to this masterpiece of basketball when he was shooting from 40 feet out on a whim. And you just knew it. It was going in the basket. That game against Oklahoma City, I think, really cemented his legacy as a shooter. I remember I was watching that with my friends, and we were about to go out to a bar, and we were waiting to see the end of this game. So we're sitting in this room like, yo, is he about to hit this? And then Breen with the bang, man. Bang! Bang! He triple banged him. Bang! He hit him with three bangs. And we all just got up. We screamed, ran to the car, just drove out to the bar. It was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever felt. And it's hard to explain it in words. But it has everything to do with the fact that I knew when he released that ball that we were about to watch something historic happen in a regular season game. He changed it. He changed how we view it. He took a team that was the laughing stock for years and years and years. If you remember the Warriors, they were never more than the seventh seed. That one year they went to, I think the the the, the semifinals was huge with Baron Davis and Monte Ellis, Beadrins, where they were never able to get anything accomplished, but they did it that year and then they did it again and then they did it again. And then Kevin Durant ruined it. I wonder if he knows that he ruined that perfect team. They could have won another one. They could have won two more. Just the three of them. And everybody would have still loved them. They were an organic team. That's what everybody wants. We didn't like the Heat because they were assembled. We loved the Warriors. Because all three of those guys were drafted by the Warriors. And they were created by the Warriors. And, 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 and Steve Kerr. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, is the perfect coach because now he's got these guys who shoot threes. And what did Steve Kerr do when he was playing? He shot threes before it was cool. And then KD comes in like, hey, I'm here now, guys. And he just ruins it. Because that's what he does. He's a ruiner. He's a ruiner. He'll never have his, his legacy returned to him. Ever. You know. Whatever. Steph Curry was drafted behind Hashim Thabit. Fuck that guy. Hate that guy. I'm a Syracuse guy. He's a Yukon guy. Never liked him. Thought he had an attitude. Pretty happy it didn't work out. I remember watching him go to the D-League his first year as a number two pick. And just like being so full of joy to watch him fail. You know, big guy. Had all the tools just didn't work out. I would have felt a whole lot better if Johnny Flynn was in that draft. I love John Johnny Flynn, man. Oh man, that one sucks. It wasn't even his fault. He had a he had a hip thing that happened. He started playing in Australia. He was averaging fifteen a game his rookie season. But no one will ever know that because he got drafted one pick before Steph by the Timberwolves, who already just drafted a point guard, one pick before him, and Ricky Rubio. They didn't know if he was going to be in the, uh, if he was going to make it to, the the NBA. There were some issues with with the with 
Barcelona where he was playing right there. But one pick before him, poor Johnny. And, you know, if you guys know the six-overtime game against UConn when Syracuse played UConn in 2000 and whatever, I don't know. Johnny Flynn played 70 minutes in that game and then went the next game and played an overtime game against West Virginia. I just want you all to know that before you talk crap about him being drafted one pick before Steph Curry. 70 minutes. You try to play 70 minutes in a game. It's not that easy. Yeah. Before you talk, think, guys. He's a human being. Okay? In 96, we had a great draft class. I went into that. The 96 draft class is one that I've, I, I love touching on because of the talent that we saw in there. But one guy who didn't get drafted that year but started to play soon after went by the name of Ben Wallace out of Virginia Union. You know, small school, wasn't touted out of high school. This wasn't the time of Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. It's hard to get notoriety back in the early 90s. How do you do it? right? But Ben Wallace did it. And he brought the old school back to the new age. And, you know, he didn't score too much. Didn't really matter. He didn't score, but it didn't it didn't matter because he's averaging 15 boards a game. He's almost put, putting up four blocks a game. He was the best shot blocker in the league for a couple seasons, and he was barely 6'8". He was listed as 6'9", but I think that's a joke. I think that's when he had his hair up in the afro. But, uh, and, and, I mean, 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, I heard a... a I heard an interview about him recently where he said that he would he would uh, put his hair in braids. I don't know if you if you ever watched Ben Wallace, you know that when he was home in Detroit, he would have his hair out in the afro, and when he would go on the road, he would do cornrows. Because and I didn't I thought it was just like a thing he did. I thought it was just like kind of how he, he was. But he said he would do that because people would throw stuff in his hair when he was on the road, so he would put it in cornrows so he would know. And then when he's home, you put it in, in into the, the afro. I think uh, I think talking about Ben Wallace is is important because guys like that often get left behind when it comes to the history of the NBA. He was not that exciting. He was not that impressive. He he did not do a whole lot of things that we look at and immediately say, "Oh yeah, this guy's a star." But he was a star, and he deserved every piece of recognition that he got. He was the most important player on that championship team. And I will say that every single day, the most important player on that championship team. If they did not have him, they do not stop Shaquille O'Neal. If they don't stop Shaquille O'Neal, they don't win. And they had him and he did it. And so ultimately, I'm not going to go into all the guys that, that got drafted in front of him in 96 because everybody got drafted in front of him. He didn't get drafted. Nobody saw him as a talent, but he came and he proved everybody wrong. That's the beauty of these kind of gems undrafted gems and then the last one when it comes to the tweeners and I talk about Ben Wallace as a tweener because of his height I don't know if that if I made that clear but the last one on in terms of tweeners is by far without question not even a, a shadow of a sliver of an ounce of a doubt in my mind he is the weirdest player uh, probably in any major sport of all time you probably know who I'm about to say. I don't even think I have to say it. Yeah, I'm talking about Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman, 6'7", 
barely 200 pounds, maybe 210 at his peak. But this guy would come out on any given day and he'll get you 19, 20, 25 boards. You know, the, the story was, one of the stories, <laughs> the story, right? With Robin, there's like a story a day. One of the stories was that when they would play against Utah, Utah's not all that far away from, from Vegas. So he would, on, on the road games during the finals, would go to the casinos in Vegas and go party in Vegas and then come back to play the game the next day. And then he would come back hungover still and get 30 rebounds. He was one of the best rebounders that's ever lived. I mean, honestly... If you if you made Dennis Rodman six foot ten, six foot eleven, what do you do? What it, what is the average? Is it more or is it the same? Did it matter how, how tall he was? I mean, these are really important questions, I think. He got drafted in nineteen eighty six. He was another guy who was relatively old when he got drafted. I think he was twenty five when he got drafted. An older guy started playing college late. It's a different. It was a different league back then, though. They weren't looking for freshmen. They were looking for guys with more time. But when he went to Detroit, he immediately became the glue guy, just like Draymond. He's the glue guy. He's necessary. He he performs a task so well that you don't you cannot ask him to do anything else because you have to just let him work because he's so good at what he does. He would lock you down. He would outperform you. One of the best one to five defenders that's ever lived. I don't know if you can really put anybody above him. He was the most outspoken player that's ever lived. Probably the most controversial Hall of Famer. Best friends with Kim Jong-un. Can't explain it. Not going to try to explain it. That's fine. Whatever. Or floats his boat. You know, and it's it's just one of those things where he was just an absolute good on the court, but he just he didn't really seem like he could get it together off the court. And it made his career phase out. So he was drafted behind a bunch of guys who are now in their mid fifties. So I don't expect anybody to know any of these these names because if you can't tell, I'm I'm talking about names that who who are like not good, you know. So I don't know if you know any burnouts from the mid '80s, but I will say that he got drafted behind Pearl Washington, which sucks for me because that's another Syracuse guy. He uh, he's like a legend. He was a New York City legend who went to Syracuse and was a legend for the Cuse, and then he got drafted and he sucked in the league like normal. And that's the era of the tweeners. And you know the last the last one that I wanted to touch on for a minute. I'm not going to go into all of these guys. Is the one dimensions because a lot of these guys aren't necessarily considered steals because they got drafted for that one dimension, and they got drafted because they know that that one dimension could potentially blossom into something else. Michael Red, I think, is probably the best example of this. People don't know this. If you know Michael Red, and if you're younger, you probably don't know who that is. He was on the Bucks post Ray Allen. He was on that Bucks team post Ray Allen. He was the guy on that team. He would average 20, 22 a game. Had one season where he was up to 25. One of the best shooters in the league. 
but he got drafted as a defensive guy. The same thing like Rondo, Donnie Mitchell, Avery Bradley, post guys like DeAndre Jordan, Rudy Gobert. Mr. Loves to Touch Microphones. Thanks, Rudy. Appreciate it. Now ESPN's just playing repeats of games, so hope you're happy. There's guys who were, you know, those were just the defensive-minded guys. I think Bruce Bowen was was really drafted like that too. But if you think about Bruce Bowen, I don't know how much more he really expanded on that. He was really just the lockdown guy. He'll guard your best player. He was dirty. I don't know if you guys know how dirty he was. He was not, he was not like a great guy. But whatever, I won't go into it. The guy who gets drafted as a shooter, I think the best example is Clay Thompson. Pull-up shooters, dime a dozen, but not like this. Not like this. Not the ability to get his shot off. Clay's got the nicest jump shot in the NBA right now. I don't know who could dispute that. It's so pure. It gets out so quickly. He's able to pull it up whenever. He's got the nicest jump shot. Steph, Steph's a better shooter because he can do it on the dribble. But Clay's got the better shot. And then you have guys like Jamal Crawford, Monte Ellis, who get drafted just as bucket getters. How much do they improve on that bucket getting? You know, some for some guys it remains to be seen. I think Devontae Graham's a good example of that. He got drafted as a bucket getter. Malik Monk, two Charlotte Hornets. They're both bucket getters. And we, we have yet to see how much more they can do really. Oladipo was for sure drafted as a bucket getter. You know, we knew he was a freak athlete. We just didn't know what else he could do. Lou Will. But as you can see, it's it's as I feel for scouts sometimes. Not really, because they get paid pretty well, but like I feel for some scouts because it's so hard to know. How do you know? How do you know if your guy's gonna work out? How do you know if the next guy's not gonna work out? How do you know if that next guy could be the star and your guy could be a bust? It always is impossible at the end of the day. It really just comes down to sometimes luck, sometimes diligence. Next time, I'm going to be talking about the 2009 draft. I think it's a draft that has now shaped the NBA enough for it to be a topic of conversation. I think that it's a a draft that has enough firepower, star power right now, that we have to, we can can do an entire episode just on 2009. So I'm going to start researching that right now. And uh, until next time, y'all, thanks so much for listening.